Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. My guest in this episode is Dr. Peter Grinspoon. And Dr. Grinspoon has an amazing story to tell. This is an interesting episode because it dovetails really nicely with the last episode that we put up with Dr. Deborah Howery from the CDC discussing the opioid epidemic that we are really actively trying to confront and think about ways to deal with uh, in the United States. Dr. Grinspoon has a new book out and it's called Free Refills. And in this book, he is very open and candid about his own journey uh, as a physician and at the same time as a person who was addicted to prescription pain medication. Um, this was a really challenging conversation. Dr. Grinspoon has been through two parallel pathways that a lot of people don't go through. He went through medical training. He has been a practicing physician, and he has also struggled with his own addiction. And he's very candid about what he's dealt with. His opinions are obviously honed against some very sharp rocks. We had a, a really compelling discussion around how we got to this point, where we go forward from here, uh, solutions, ideas, controversies. Um, you know, it's, it's really something to hear a physician be this candid about um, a real struggle that they had in their own life and how they've been able to overcome it and being able to reflect that light back to people who have the same struggle. And there are a lot of folks with the same struggle. So without further ado, Dr. Peter Grinspoon. Dr. Grinspoon, welcome to Explore the Space. Thank you for having me. This is really special of you to join us. Um, I would imagine that the last few months after the release of your book have been something of a whirlwind. What would be the sort of adjective you would use to describe what happens when you put a book and a story like this out into the world? Well, it's been really interesting. I would say that most of the response has been really positive and that a very small percentage of it has been very negative. But huh. there's been very little response that's not either very positive or very negative. I, I would have not expected you to say there has been a strong negative response or a corner of the response that has been strongly negative. Where, where is that coming from? What is the trajectory of a negative response to a story like this? Well, on Amazon, for example, some people would say that they just couldn't stand my tone and that they thought I was unrepentant, that I didn't take responsibility for my addiction, and that I sounded like an arrogant doctor. So I think some of the stuff we say and do as doctors can kind of hit the wrong button in certain people. That is, do you think that some of that response is how they would have responded to any doctor talking about anything? You mentioned this idea of that they felt like you're an arrogant physician. This book is anything but arrogant. <laughs> it is humble. It is open. It is honest. It is quite the opposite of arrogant or showing any sort of hubris. Do you think that that's just, uh, I don't know, like a knee-jerk response that someone has to a doctor telling a story? Well, it's a knee-jerk response to one of two things. One is to a doctor telling a story. And two, I think some of the negative response was from people in the recovery community that are very sort of fundamentalist about their views. Because I sort of make step, make fun of some of the 
some of the aspects of recovery, like the 12 step program and a lot of the platitudes that they give you. So I made fun of some of it. And I think that might've been what rubbed some people the wrong way. So then let's take it to the other side. Obviously the response in the press, the response online seems like it's been roundly positive. It's been pretty exciting. What are some of the things that when people reach out to you or saying who have heard your story, read the book, want to kind of engage with you and talk about this when they have things that are meaningful to them, what, what's kind of coming forward? Well, one woman said she's a physician and her son is addicted to heroin. So she read the book and found it very painful, but thought it was a great book and really sort of admires that I told my story. But she said it was very painful for her to read it because it brought up a lot of the ambivalence and ambiguity around her situation with her family. Um, a friend of my family's, a different person, called me the next morning after it came out and said, I read your book. I'm hiding bottles of vodka. I'm an alcoholic. Nobody knows it. And he asked if he could meet with me. And we had coffee the next day. And he's been sober since. And then a third woman tweeted me or direct messaged me privately on Twitter saying, I read your book. I've had enough. I've been abusing pills for five years. I've not checked myself into a woman's treatment center and I'm inspired enough to get treatment now. So I would take three of those stories over a thousand negative reviews by literary reviewers any day. That is, that is amazing that people would reach out like that. It seems like when there are these sort of honest storytelling approaches to addiction, to substance abuse, that the, one of the hopeful corollaries is that people do reach out and they, they are honest with the person that puts it out in the world. And it's amazing that you've been able to, to kind of harvest a little bit of that and help people find that road. But when you put the book out, the, the one thing about it that I found really interesting is in terms of almost a little bit of a serendipity, you released your book and then not shortly after, or maybe even a little before the CDC released its new guidelines on pain medication prescribing. Did you know this was going to happen? Did you know that this overlap was going to happen or was, or, or was coming? Well, I've been working on the book for a long time. Yeah. Because part of my process of like healing and forgiving myself and not feeling so bad about myself was to write it down and to hopefully make something good come out of something bad. And a couple of years ago, I did notice that the opiate issue was like heating up exponentially. Yes. And I thought, you know, my story might be a really valuable part of this whole discussion. So the fact that the opiate issue was heating up, it was part of what got me off my butt and got me to find an agent and to find a publisher and to publish the book. But I didn't know anything specific, like that the CDC would <laughs> um, be giving us new guidelines because my, my crystal ball is broken. Right, right. But it is, it is really amazing. The opiate issue is just a huge issue right now, and it's a very tragic issue. Well, and I think that's the important thing for us to remember. Like you say, it was heating up. I would say now we're at a rolling boil with with the people's perceptions of pain medication and awareness around this issue. And your book really did kind of pop up right in the thick of it. But I think you're right that it's great that we have this new awareness. It's, it's exciting that we can talk about it. It's amazing that there's books like yours that are out there, but it's also really illustrating a, a quite a tragedy that really extends all over our communities. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, dozens of people are, are dying every day. And those are just the people that are dying. Many more people are overdosing or kind of silently living these miserable lives. And I'm hoping, and I'm somewhat encouraged that society is starting to take a much more humane 
view of addiction and starting to treat addicts like they are people who have a disease that requires love and compassion as opposed to just punishing them and locking them away. Mm -hmm. So I hope that we're heading in the right direction. When you were starting off your medical training, were you, and you were first learning about pain management, addiction medicine, these sorts of things, aside from whether you were ever afraid that it might be something that would, you would have to deal with in your life. Do you remember what your initial impressions were when you were first learning about this stuff, first hearing about this stuff? Well, I was first hearing about it in the context of the patients we were taking care of. And I trained at the, the kind of inner city hospital in Boston called Boston City Hospitals. And these were not the most inspiring patients to take care of. They were really, really down and out. So I viewed addiction as something that afflicts people with these shattered lives. Uh, I don't want to say hopeless, but really, you know, really um, demoralized people with, with not much going for them and not very healthy and not very bright about the future. And I've come to realize over my medical training and my medical career that it can affect anybody. It's not just the extreme cases you see at the inner city hospital where you're training, but it really, it really is affecting everybody. I mean, I hardly know anybody that doesn't have a addiction themselves or a wife, a kid, a parent, a cousin, a friend who's addicted. I mean, it really does affect almost everybody. So the reality of what I'm seeing is very different from what we were shown in medical school. Do you think that that made it easier, harder, or had no effect when the process of you becoming addicted to pain medication started? Well, I think it made it much harder. Uh, there's one section of my book where I'm actually in Boston City Hospital working in the emergency department. And I happened to be taking care of all these drug-related problems because that's a lot of what came in on a Friday night in the summer. It's a lot of what came in anytime, actually. And I remember being really, in my own mind, sort of condescending and judgmental about these people, thinking they were sort of low lives. But that, ironically, I was doing the same drugs in my spare time that they were doing. So I was such a hypocrite about it, and I was so blind to my own addiction. And I think it actually made it harder to recognize my addiction because sort of the trappings of my addiction were so different than like the trappings of the addiction I was seeing in the emergency room. I just didn't seem like I had anything in common with these people when in fact they were an addict and I was an addict. Did you ever have the opportunity to talk about it with any of your patients at that time to say, this is something that I am involved with, this is something that I may be, that I'm worried about, did that ever come up for you at all? Oh, no, I was in such denial, uh -huh. and I was so busy hiding my addiction from everybody that I wouldn't have ever volunteered about it. If anybody had asked me about it, I would have been like, what addiction? I'm fine. And that seems like, especially for professionals, oftentimes that's uh, sort of a trope that they'll, that they'll use, that I, I don't have an addiction, I'm fine, look how high-functioning I am. Have you found that to be something that lots of people that aren't, that don't sort of come forward with that, you know, stereotyped, shattered life, everything is destroyed, but yet you're still an addict, that they can use that and kind of hide behind it a little bit? Oh, absolutely. First of all, as you know, doctors are awful patients and we have trouble asking for help and assuming the sick role. So it's sort of hard for us to get help anyways. And a big problem with getting treatment for addiction is that it's very difficult if you're in denial. It's very hard to get treatment for a problem until you recognize and are bought into the fact you have a problem. 
and healthcare professionals tend to be in major denial about their addictions. And that partially is because they drive nice cars, they have nice houses, they live in the suburbs, everybody defers to them in the office. They're not treated like an addict at all. And then the final thing I want to say is another obstacle towards doctors and other healthcare professionals getting help is that the help that is offered to us is so punitive. If you are having trouble with drugs or alcohol and you confess this fact, you can get your medical license taken away. And the problem is, in this case, nobody gets help until, you know, the surgeon is drunk in the OR, or in my case, the friendly primary care doctor gets raided by the DEA and the state police because the treatment is so punitive. So one of my beliefs is that if we can make the treatment less punitive and more kind of collaborative, then doctors and all people would get help much earlier in their disease before a lot of the wreckage we see takes place. Mm -hmm. Was there ever a point for you at which you thought, maybe I should reach out for help prior to the story that you relate very vividly in the book about your office being raided by the state police and the drug enforcement agency? Yeah, there was one time when I took too many oxycodone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was a Wiley doctor, and I'd been an addict for about 10 years, and I knew what I was doing. And I didn't have that many brushes with, like, disaster. But in this case, I took way too many by mistake. I miscalculated. And I woke up, and I didn't know where I was, and I didn't know what had happened the last 12 hours. And I was really scared mm -hmm. because I had this huge bottle of 80-milligram Oxycontins, and I'd just taken five of them, and I had about 400 of them left, and I was worried that I was going to kill myself. So I actually did, at that point, go to an addiction psychiatrist who was very kind. He dumped this huge bottle of pills down the toilet, and he gave me some Suboxone, like a rapid taper of the replacement therapy Suboxone to try to get me off the opiate. Before that happened, your, your substance of choice was prescription pain medication in a pill form, correct? Absolutely. Was it ever hard for you to get medication? Was it ever hard for you to get your drug of choice? Um, it was, it ranged from easy to very easy. And that's one huh. of the problems of being a doctor. And that's why we call the book free refills because we as doctors have such unlimited access to prescription medication. And if you think about it, if you combine all the stress there is today, which I don't have to tell you about being a doctor, it's like incredibly stressful being a doctor these days. And there's this whole epidemic of physician burnout, which is a discussion, I'm sure, for another day. But you combine this amazing stress with unlimited access to these mind-altering substances that can just improve your mood and make all your problems disappear, at least for a couple hours. That's a perfect storm for opiate addiction. Mm -hmm. And I think I sort of stumbled right into this perfect storm. One other thing that's come up when I've talked with, you know, colleagues, patients, Around the issue of um, addiction, I had Dr. Howery from the CDC on a previous episode, and we talked about the same thing. Was there was it felt like there was a disconnect with how dangerous, powerful, and addictive these prescription pain medications were? Um, did you feel like that? Did you ever have a sense that this is something that's a little bit more benign, or were you like, "Man, I am playing with fire, but I'm still going to play"? Well, you know, the first time I tried Vicodin, which was the beginning of the end. I, we had had a bunch of different pills, um, a, my, um, a, a classmate of mine and I, and we were reading up about them. We just had this in the supply closet. And it said, um, you know, we looked at Vicodin and it said, careful, danger, you know, causes extreme euphoria, 
and a false sense of well-being. So instead of like taking that warning for what it is and running the other direction, I was like, oh, this sounds great. And I took it right away. And I had a really bad attitude. I just, I knew it was dangerous, but I just didn't care. To me, it was fun. It was like my rebellion against like being kind of on the conveyor belt of like becoming a doctor and being a doctor. But it was such a dangerous thing to rebel over. It was like life-threatening. But doesn't that warning feel almost satirical? Danger may cause the warning euphoria. Warning to me sounded extreme... like an invitation. It sounds. I mean, it sounds like something you'd find on like Gomer blog or something. It, it, make make you feel great, and you'll and everything will be better. It just strikes right. me as a little bizarre. Right. Don't take this because you'll feel wonderful. Right. <laughs> it wasn't a particularly effective warning. Right. Right. As as life kind of went on, did you ever? feel like physically you were changing and there were things that you had to conceal or hide from your physical appearance, your outward appearance around colleagues, around patients, around friends or family that you were afraid might tip them off that you were struggling? Absolutely. I mean, I was, toward the end, I was taking opiates every single night and I wasn't taking one or two of my and I was taking like 10 to 20. So I was getting really high at night and that has a huge effect on you the next day. So I would be in clinic, and I wouldn't ever be high in clinic, but I would be so hungover and withdrawing and brain dead and kind of nauseous and shaky, and I just looked awful, and I had to sort of hide that from my colleagues, but there was no great way to hide it, and I think part of it is that primary care doctors look kind of harried on a good day, so I think nobody noticed for a long time because we were all running around like crazy. But if you were to look more closely at me, you'd see that I was a wreck. As that process evolves, you speak very vividly in your book about kind of when things, I think you talked about it in terms of a bubble being burst when your office was raided and you were confronted with the fact that the authorities were standing in front of you. The concept of rock bottom comes up. It's in the popular media. It's in the movies. Is 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 there a rock bottom for everyone? Is there a time where you say, this is it, and I have to rebound from this. There's nowhere to go but up because I can't get much lower. Well, it should have been a rock bottom that I was raided by the DEA and the state police. I mean, I can't even describe with words how stressful that was. Like, first of all, I thought I had everybody outsmarted. And second of all, I thought the addiction was under control, and I couldn't believe that they were actually in my office. And that was awful, and it should have been a rock bottom. But the problem is I was so addicted that I flunked a lot more, like three or four more drug tests. And then I get sent to rehab for 90 days, and I had these criminal charges. I got put on probation for two years, which is very stressful. But the problem with addiction is, like, even though you should be at rock bottom, if you stumble upon some Vicodin, you're going to take it. So I didn't really get to rock bottom, I think, until I lost my medical license, which I was out of work for three and a half years, which is awful. I mean, I love being a doctor. Mm-hmm. So, but it's interesting that you mentioned rock bottom. That's sort of becoming a controversial issue mm-hmm. because the old school, the whole 12 step people who are into like abstinence only recovery, you know, their thing is tough love, wait till the addict finds rock bottom, don't enable them. And then they'll pick, pick themselves up, dust themselves off and get help. But the problem is we're seeing dozens of people overdose and die every day. So to let someone find their quote unquote bottom, they're going to be dead one day. 
So I think people are abandoning the idea of rock bottom because a lot of people are overdosing and like there's no coming back from the rock bottom. And I think people were kind of switching towards like less of a tough love treatment of addiction and more of a kind of compassionate, uh, nurturing uh, treatment of the addicts and their families. So you obviously have the unique perspective as being a physician who is obviously trained to try to help people, trained to help people overcome exactly what you were going through. And then at the same time, you've been through it. Yes, and I did both at the same time. (laughs) Your perspective on this obviously is a very unique one. I mean, if you were to, if someone were to call on you in class and say, all right, Peter, what, what is the correct answer? How do we a- help someone realize they need to enter recovery and then help them through the recovery process? Where is the, let's not, let's not even get to the end point. Where do we start? Well, that's a tough question, but one place to start is with the primary care doctor. Mm-hmm. Most people have like friendly primary care doctors. And you could just go in with the person that you're worried about being an addict and say, look, I'm really worried about this person. What resources can we get for them? But the hardest part is that the addict, a lot of the time, the whole family is really worried. The workplace is worried. Everybody's worried, but the addict themselves isn't worried because they're in such denial. I think denial is like the biggest obstacle towards getting help. Mm -hmm. So I think the first step is to really find a way to get the addict on board themselves because if they're not bought into the treatment, it's not going to work. Like you can go to court and section 35, someone, at least that's what it's called in Massachusetts. When you say this person's like killing themselves, they're addicted. We're going to force them through the courts to get into treatment. You can get them treatment, but then they're sort of detoxed for three days and put back out in the streets and they're just going to relapse. So I think that the most important thing is to find a way to communicate to the addict on, on the wavelength that they'll, that they'll get if there is one to try to get them bought into the fact that they have a problem, that it doesn't have to be a death sentence, that you're there for them and you're connected to them and that you're going to help them get treatment. It's a tough one though, because as you point out, everyone's context is going to be different and it'll be, you, you need the microclimate in a way. You need the people that know this, you know, the person who's struggling the best or that person to feel comfortable enough to come forward. Um, I, I think that's one of the biggest challenges with the opioid epidemic is that ev- there are so many different contexts that to apply a recipe, I think, for how we're going to start to take on the challenge is, is, a, is daunting. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try it. It doesn't mean we don't need to get after it. But there's so many different contexts, stories, backgrounds, perceptions that we have to kind of wade through to start the conversation. No, absolutely. And also, I mean, a huge percentage of people with addiction are self-treating other psychiatric problems, like their depression, their bipolar, or their anxiety. And if you don't exactly treat their context, the addiction treatment isn't going to work. Like if someone has a really bad anxiety disorder and that's how they got addicted to sedatives, you can put them in rehab for their sedatives. But if you don't concurrently treat their anxiety, they're going to be a huge risk for relapse. So yes, one size does not fit all. But, you know, there is a certain amount of commonality for all people um, to the opiates, such as suboxone and methadone, the medication-assisted therapy. I think they can help almost anybody regardless of their context. So there, Mm -hmm. there is some commonality, but absolutely, there has to be some component of the treatment that 
is recognizing and addressing like the individual baggage that each person brings to their problem. So, I mean, we've talked about how it's a big challenge, obviously, for the individual. It's a big challenge for a community. It's a big challenge for our whole country. You've been talking about your book. You've been discussing your story in parallel with national attention turning to this issue in a way that it probably never really has before. So as that's been happening, what are your, what's your sort of sense of how that discussion is going? Are you, are you happy with how it's going? Are you happy that it started? Does it need to pick up more speed? Which direction are we heading in this sort of what's rapidly become a national conversation? Right. I think we're definitely heading in the right direction, which is decriminalizing addiction and treating it with love, empathy, compassion, and medical resources. And I think we're heading there. There's this sheriff, um, in this police chief in Gloucester, a town just north of Boston, that just said, I've had enough, and he stopped arresting drug addicts and is now sending every one of him, every one of the drug addicts that he comes across as police chief. He's instructed all his officers to find them treatment as opposed to arrest them. And that's being emulated all over the state. Hmm. And I think all over the country, like we're finally stopping arresting people and starting to get them into treatment. I mean, that said, the drug war is still going full strength, full swing. So there's a lot of work to be done. But I think overall, to answer your question, the conversation is definitely heading in the right direction. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. This is like the one issue that Democrats and Republicans find common ground on. I mean, name another issue that they agree on. Mm-hmm. And they're all in agreement about like the need to urgently treat this and provide more resources for it. So I think we're heading in the right direction. But there's still such a stigma of addicts and of addiction that we've got a long way to go until addicts feel safe and comfortable coming out of the shadows and getting the treatment that they need. So what is, how, how do we move the needle a little bit closer in that direction? How, what would you say... You know, what would you prescribe as sort of that next step from that national level, from that perspective of we've got these interesting, small, local efforts? What's what helps tip the balance a little bit? Because not a little bit. What helps tip the balance? Well, I'm hoping that more people come out with their stories. I hear that a lawyer is coming out with her struggle with alcoholism as a lawyer. And I've come out as a doctor and I'm hoping that people from all professions. And the more people come out, like normal people, and show people that anybody can be addicted, that it can affect anybody, that's going to help. And it also just helps that um, people's eyes are being opened to this new way of thinking about addiction, of treating it compassionately. Because a lot of people, as I mentioned before, are affected by addiction in loved ones, family members, relatives, friends. And hopefully, instead of taking a really old-fashioned, tough love approach, or just calling the police, or um, kind of dismissing the person and cutting them off, hopefully people will start to internalize what they're hearing and start treating people with a little bit more compassion. Because, you know, addiction, the worst thing you do for an addict is abandon them and cut them off. That's just going to make them worse. Then they're going to feel hopeless, and they're just going to use more drugs. And I think the best thing to do is sort of engage them, which can be really frustrating and annoying because they're addicted and they're they're very like, you know, not really on board with a lot of what you're saying and doing. But I think, I think again, to answer your question that we are heading in the right direction, but the more we can end the war on drugs um, and the prohibitions for the last hundred years of drugs, the more we'll take the criminal criminality out of it 
the more we'll bankrupt the drug dealers, and the more we'll make it so that dollars are freed from law enforcement to treatment, because there's a real shortage of treatment beds in this country. And I think if we spent less time punishing and more time treating, we'd be in much better shape. When you look at the, th- so there's things that give you a sense of optimism. Where are, what are the things that piss you off? What are the things that, having been through what you've been through, overcome what you've overcome, and then you, you kind of take a look around and see this growing conversation, which we've talked about the things that are exciting. What are the parts of it that just piss you off that say, this is not, we're not doing this right? The thing that pisses me off the most is the fact, and this again goes back to the war on drugs, which has been a complete failure. We have the most incarcerated population of any population in the history of human beings. We have a way higher incarceration rate than like dictatorships like China. Like there's no country in history that's ever had as high a prison population as we've had. And many of these prisoners are for nonviolent drug offenses, not for being drug dealers, not for killing, but for just using drugs or being addicted. So we've got literally millions of people in prison for being addicted. So instead of treating them and helping them, we're punishing them and wrecking their lives. And of course, they'll have a criminal record and they'll never get a job and they'll get out of prison and they won't have any money. And they just, their lives will never get better. And we're making their lives worse instead of helping them. And that's the part that pisses me off the most. The fact that when we could be helping and treating people and addiction can be treated very successfully, we're still punishing them. It takes, I don't know how they're going to get these millions of people out of jail. Yeah, that, that, this issue brings up so many challenges that reach so far, and that's another one. Um, but f- for you now, as a physician who's back to work, obviously recovery is an everyday challenge, but it's an everyday challenge obviously worth taking on. Do you feel a different sense of motivation now when you sit down with patients to talk about not addiction so much, but when you talk about management of pain? When something happens and someone gets hurt and they're injured and they need to manage pain in, a, in an appropriate way, do you have a different focus or a different approach when you talk about here are some medicines, here are our options, here are our choices, let's go forward, than you may have had at any other point in your life? Well, absolutely. But it's a delicate balance between overtreating pain and getting people addicted and undertreating pain and having people suffer. Mm-hmm. And so I try to not shift to the other extreme. Like I, as much as anybody, know the dangers of opiates. I mean, I literally almost died that time that I took too many Oxycontin, and it really, like, wrecked my life for, like, 10 years. Like, it was miserable. So I'm completely aware of the risks of opiates, and I'm not shy at all about expounding upon that with my patients. But at the same time, people do need pain medication sometimes. And I feel as a primary care doctor under a lot of pressure these days not to prescribe opiates. We get warnings from the DEA, we get warnings from the board, we get warnings from our hospital about what's going to happen if we prescribe too many opiates, and then you read in some states how they're investigating all the overdoses and trying to trace it back to the doctors and see what they did. And I'm more cautious than I've ever been in prescribing opiates. But at the same time, I'm sort of stubbornly refusing um, to stop prescribing them if I think they're needed because I really don't want to undertreat pain. But again, that's just such a difficult balance. Where do you think healthcare in general is in 
helping both sides of the equation, the patient who is in pain and the healthcare providers and the healthcare systems that are going to help them manage their pain. Where are we in walking that tightrope? Because you're right. It's a very delicate balance. Um, and we also don't want people, we don't want to, we don't want our people to suffer in any direction. You know, we want to, we want to help them live the life that they want to live, um, in a, in a positive, healthy and, um, excited way. Where are we in, in navigating that balance? Well, we've got to get people off the opiates. Um, not everybody. I mean, some people with terminal chronic pain definitely need opiates, but we have way too many people on opiates. Like, we have so many more people on opiates than any other country. Last year, we prescribed something like 250 million bottles of painkillers for Americans. That's almost enough for each adult in America to have their own bottle of painkillers. I mean, that's crazy. Personally, I think there's a huge gap in what we could use to treat people. And I think the gap is rapidly being filled by medical marijuana because medical marijuana is so much safer than the opiates. And it is effective for mild to moderate pain. Of course, if it's severe pain, we're still going to need the opiates. Like there's certain pain that there's no getting around needing opiates. But I think for kind of like the moderate arthritis pain of an aging population, I think a lot of those people are going to switch and are already switching, I've been reading in the paper, are already switching from opiates to cannabis because it's just a lot safer. I can, I can hear people's alarm bells going off when you bring up that subject. Um, and, and as that one, as we do look for alternatives, that one is going to cause fires. It's going to, we're going to need education. We're going to need, again, change, you know, perhaps needing to rethink perceptions and what we all learned as little kids, what we learned in our education, what we learned from our friends, what we learned in our professional training. Um, because you're right, the alternatives to pain management, sometimes we feel like, gosh, I would love some other tools. Um, but some of these other tools have their own set of stigma, have their own set of concerns, have their own set of worry associated with them. No, absolutely. But I just think the alternatives relative to opiates are all looking a lot better these days with the epidemic that we're having. It's going to be really interesting to see how we're able to reconcile these different uh, agendas and responses that, that you have, because you're right. I mean, we are in the midst of, of, a, of an epidemic that we need to think about creatively and approach from many, many different directions, again, with a focus on safety and a focus on helping people overcome the, the, the challenges that are in front of them. Yeah, when no, absolutely. And it's important not to forget that the pharmaceutical industry, they're, they're the ones who like kind of deliberately marketed Oxycontin and, you know, they have a big role in causing this epidemic. And I'm hoping that they're going to contribute their share to getting us out of it. When you look at the rest of your career, when you look at the road that you've kind of been on and, and now thinking about how you want to go forward, what your goals have probably been reset a little bit from when they were when you were finishing college or going into medical school. What, where are your own goals now after all that you've been through? Well, my goal to start with is to be like kind of a nicer and better doctor than I was before. Like I think this whole addiction and recovery and having my life fall apart has really been a, a humbling effect on me. And I feel like I'm a little bit more down to earth and I'm hoping to kind of use these new kind of interpersonal skills to be a really good primary care doctor. A, B, I'm hoping to get as involved as I can 
in the addiction issue because I feel, as you said before, that I have a pretty unique perspective having been the doctor and the patient both at the same time. And C, I really enjoy writing, so I'm hoping to keep keep up the writing career. I'm never going to not be involved in the addiction field because this is really cutting edge and very exciting. It is amazing that you've been able to come as far as you have and that the obstacles that you've talked about that make it hard for so many, you've been able to push through and be able to tell your story and get on the road to recovery and be able to be thinking about what the next steps are going to be that don't involve uh, prescription pain medication. So uh, it's going to be interesting to watch what comes next and what you do next. And also, at the same time, watch how this discussion goes. I think all of us are very keen to see whether the momentum around this kind of keeps up or uh, what directions it goes as that momentum continues to build. Yeah, I can't imagine that it will die out anytime soon because it's just affecting too many people. It's affecting all the people that are addicted and overdosing, which is like 25 million people that are addicted. It's affecting all the people that are in recovery, which is another 25 million people. And it's affecting all the people in our country that have chronic pain, which is way more than 25 million people. I mean, I can't imagine that this is not going to be an ongoing discussion, given, for example, what we just spoke about, about what are we going to use to treat people's pain? I mean, that's going to be a huge discussion for at least a decade. It's going to be very interesting to watch it go. I think your story and the fact that you'll be able to be so open and honest about it will be an important part of it and an important part of keeping keeping the interest up and keeping people focused and engaged on what we need to work on. So thank you so much for coming on the show and, and being so candid and honest about what you've been through and, and giving some insight into what the road forward might look like. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.